It's December 1970, and in Mattel's L.A. headquarters, there's a crisis meeting underway. Sizzlers, the new motorized Hot Wheels cars, were supposed to be this Christmas's hottest toy. That's not happening. And Mattel's CEO, Ruth Handler, wants answers. How far below our sales target are we? Finance Chief Seymour Rosenberg checks the figures. Uh, Almost $30 million. Ruth takes a drag on her cigarette. This is bad. Mattel's promised Wall Street another year of record growth, the kind of growth it delivered throughout the 60s. $30 million below expectations? Bad. Really bad. And Ruth is about to learn from her finance guy that could have big implications. We're facing a stock price collapse. And if that happens, it'll be much harder to secure financing for more acquisitions. Our growth strategy will be kaput. Ruth glares at the worried-looking men around the table. Any bright ideas? One executive makes a suggestion. We could build and hold. What do you mean? We get stores to place next year's orders now and count those orders as sales today. And then if we can drum up enough orders before our year end in January, it'll look like we had a great Christmas. One vice president looks alarmed because he knows this is not kosher. Why would retailers want to do that? We don't need them to actually take the toys. All we need is for them to make the orders. If they change their minds, they can cancel the orders after our year end before we ship them a product. The room goes quiet. This isn't how things are usually done at Mattel. Normally, the company only records an order as a sale when it is shipped toys to the buyer. But these are desperate times. The executive who suggested the bill-and-hold approach reassures his colleagues. Look, as long as we do well next year, we can smooth it over. It'll be like nothing ever happened. After the meeting, word goes out across Mattel. Get creative in ginning up orders. Do whatever it takes. Mattel's salespeople hit the phones and push retailers into placing orders worth millions. They get $14 million worth of extra orders, but that's still not enough to meet the company's inflated sales target. So, Mattel goes even further. It starts inventing orders. Orders that no retailer made. Orders for toys that will never be shipped. Orders that will mysteriously vanish after the company's January 30th year-end date passes. At the same time, the company's accountants bump millions of dollars in costs into the next financial year. And when they're done, Mattel's earnings match the figure they promised Wall Street. In March 1971, Mattel reports another year of stellar growth and bumper profits, and no one outside the company is any the wiser. But Mattel won't be able to maintain its crooked ruse for long. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On the last episode, Hasbro broke into the big time with G.I. Joe, and Mattel wowed Wall Street with its Hot Wheels cars. But now, under pressure to maintain its reputation for spectacular growth, Mattel starts fudging its numbers. This is Episode 3 of Hasbro vs. Mattel, 
the House of Cards. March 1972, Wall Street. It's just over a year since Mattel started cooking its books, but now the company's problems are starting to show, and the stockholders who've gathered to hear the toy maker's latest financial results are anything but pleased. Chairman Elliot Handler's just announced that Mattel lost $30 million in 1971. It's the company's first loss since joining the stock market, and these investors were banking on another year of big profits. As grumbles break out across the conference room, Elliot tries glossing over the situation. The loss is a one-off, part of a wider downturn in toy sales. Plus, last fall's West Coast dock strike caused delays to our shipment. But toy sales are recovering, and we expect a strong turnaround this year. What Elliot doesn't share is that Mattel shifted last year's losses into this year as part of an elaborate cover-up. Now, those losses are showing up in this year's numbers. The analysts and investors in the room don't know that. But they're not buying Elliot's excuses and promises of a fast turnaround either. Angry stockholders file class-action lawsuits seeking damages. They claim Mattel misled them into expecting profits. Lenders are also getting twitchy about the tens of millions of dollars they've loaned the company. So, they force change at the top by threatening to cancel the company's loans. As much as it pains her, Ruth Handler takes a demotion from CEO to president, and longtime executive vice president Art Spear steps in as CEO. Yet, even with the lawsuits and management shakeups, the financial world still hasn't clocked that Mattel's been fudging its numbers. But it won't be long before the truth comes out. In February 1973, Mattel announces it's back in the black. Investors are relieved. But just two weeks later, the finance department realizes its overlooked costs worth millions. Mattel is forced to issue a correction. It hasn't made a profit. In fact, it's lost $32 million. And with that, all hell breaks loose. Mattel's stock price crashes. More stockholders file lawsuits. And in Washington, D.C., the Securities and Exchange Commission orders an investigation into what's really going on in Barbie's dream house. It's early 1974, and Ruth and Elliot Handler are on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. They're on vacation, hoping to escape the blizzard of lawsuits, investigations, and turmoil that now defines life at Mattel. But Ruth can't put work out of her mind. As Elliot unpacks, she calls her secretary. It's Ruth. I'm just checking in. Anything I should know? Nothing? Nothing at all? Okay. Talk to you later. Ruth turns to Elliot. Something's not right. There's always something going on. We've got to go back. Right away. The next day, the handlers arrive at Mattel's headquarters in Los Angeles. As they walk through the corridors of the company they built from nothing, they see startled looks on employees' faces. Senior executives dive into their offices and shut the doors. As Ruth approaches her secretary, she notices a meeting going on in the boardroom. What's happening in there? 
Ruth's secretary looks sheepish. Bankers. Ruth spins on her heels and marches straight into the room. Elliot rushes to catch up. The room goes silent. A few of the men in the room hurriedly shuffle the papers in front of them. At the head of the table is Art Spear, Mattel's new CEO. As Ruth and Elliot sit down, Spear breaks the silence. Ruth, Elliot, we weren't expecting you back so soon. I hope you had cut the chit-chat, Art. What's happening here? Who are all these people? Spear straightens his back. The SEC wanted the board to include more outsiders. This is the new board, Ruth. You and Elliot will remain co-chairman. Ruth glares at Spear's oval face. She's suspected for some time that he's been talking to the banks behind her back about what's happening inside Mattel. Now, her suspicions are confirmed. Since when does the federal government decide who sits on the board? One of the bankers pipes up. Ruth, we have, uh, <clears throat> we have lost confidence in you. We're not saying you did anything wrong, but these accounting anomalies happened on your watch. We want you to relinquish your operational role and let Art take on your duties as president. It's that, or we will cancel Mattel's credit. All $200 million of it. Ruth goes quiet. She's cornered, and there's no way out. Art Spear will now be Mattel's CEO and president. Ruth clings on for over a year, refusing to be pushed out of the company she co-founded. Day after day, she arrives for work in her pink Thunderbird and sits in her office. But there's nothing for her to do and no one at Mattel wants to be seen talking to her. She's a ghost now. Then, one morning in May 1975, someone does come to see her. The special counsel investigating Mattel's accounting practices. The man loads a cassette tape into a dictaphone and presses record. Ruth spends the next few hours chain-smoking as she answers question after question. What financial oversight did you have from 1970 to 1972? My forte is marketing, not finance. In 1969, my new financial chief, Seymour Rosenberg, encouraged me to step back from the finances. He wanted me to focus on operations. He felt I lacked the polish Wall Street expects. Now, I disagreed. But to avoid conflict, I kept my distance from the finances. Ruth takes a drag on her cigarette and continues. Also, I had my mastectomy in June of 1970, and the recovery has been difficult both psychologically and physically. So, I was less on top of the business details than I was before my breast cancer. Who suggested using bill and hold orders to meet sales targets at the December 1970 meeting? One of the toy division chiefs, I think, but it was an offhand comment. My executives know I wouldn't condone bill and hold being used for non-bona fide orders. How did you learn of the uh, illegitimate orders? Our computer crashed. I asked a senior finance executive what happened. He said it crashed because they were canceling around $20 million of bill and hold orders. 
I asked if the orders were legitimate. He said he didn't know. I asked him who was putting in the orders. He said he didn't know. I told him to remove the orders, and then I had the executive I believed to be responsible fired. Eventually, the special counsel stops the dictaphone. He removes the cassette tape and locks eyes with Ruth. Mrs. Handler, I think you're a liar. I am not lying from what others tell me. You are. I've done nothing wrong. Can't you see they are trying to save their own hides? We're done. For today, at least. Well, goodbye, Mrs. Handler. In October 1975, Ruth and Elliot Handler resign from Mattel. A month later, the special counsel issues his report, a 500-page expose of the rot inside Mattel. The report doesn't name names, but it clearly points the finger at Ruth and Finance Chief Seymour Rosenberg. The U.S. attorney responds by indicting them and four others on multiple counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, and making false financial statements. Ruth pleads innocent, but one by one, the rest of the accused strike plea bargains. As the trial date approaches, Ruth caves She changes her plea to no contest. The judge gives her a suspended 41-year prison sentence, allowing her to escape jail time provided she fulfills the terms of her probation. She must also spend the next five years doing 500 hours a year of community service. With the handlers gone, Speer, Mattel's CEO, starts pulling the company out of the wreckage. He restructures the debt, settles the stockholder lawsuits, and closes down its film studio and pet supplies business. And then comes a revolutionary idea that offers a fresh start for the disgraced toy maker by tapping into the new craze for video games. It's 1976, and Mattel marketing executive Michael Katz has just entered the company's preliminary design department. In his hand is the must-have gadget of the decade, a pocket calculator with an LED display. He walks past the cubicles where toy designers are working on new prototypes and arrives at the office of preliminary design chief Richard Chang. The doors open. Hey, Richard, got a minute? Chang looks up and spots the pocket calculator in Katz's hand. Sure. You're here to help me with my budget? (laughs) No, something better, I hope. Katz sits down and puts the calculator on the desk. You know, I've been thinking... Those electronic bat and ball games you play on your TV screen are selling like hotcakes, and at the same time, the price of these calculators is dropping fast. I mean, I got my first pocket calculator, what, three years back, and it cost me $200. This one here costs just $30. So I'm thinking, can we turn a calculator into a game? You know, a portable electronic game kids can take everywhere? Honestly, I don't know. I, I, I know zip about microprocessors. But it's a heck of an idea. Let me look into it. Chang hits the road on the hunt for answers. He heads east to Anaheim to visit the manufacturing giant Rockwell International. Rockwell's got expertise in calculator electronics. There, Chang meets with Rockwell circuit designer and video game fan, Mark Lesser. We want to turn a pocket calculator into a portable game. We're thinking a driving game where you dodge cars that race down the screen at you. Like the arcade game Wheels? 
I guess so. What I need to know is, can it be done? And if so, can it be done at an acceptable retail price? Well, uh, it's possible, but... But LED displays are limited. Your cars are just going to be like tiny blips of light. Uh, that's fine. As for the retail price, what do you think is acceptable? Um, $25 at most. Okay, might be possible. I'll give it a shot. In late 1976, Mattel's game goes on sale. It's called Auto Race, and it's the very first handheld electronic game. It sells out immediately. And as the most expensive toy Mattel produces, the profit margins are big. Spear seizes the opportunity. He creates a new division called Mattel Electronics and orders it to make more handheld games. Mattel now sees electronics as the future of play, and it wants to put itself at the forefront of this digital revolution. But before it can do that, it's got to stop Hasbro's new plan to take on Barbie, a plan based around TV's hottest crime fighters. It's February 1977, and in New York City, toy fair is underway. In Hasbro's showroom, Steven Hassenfeld is introducing a store buyer to the company's latest creations. Steven's the company's president and son of CEO Merrill Hassenfeld. The curly-haired 32-year-old starts by showing the buyer a display of superhero figures. This is the new G.I. Joe, Super Joe. The buyer peers at the superhero action figure in the red jumpsuit. Doesn't look much like G.I. Joe, Steven. Smaller, too. What, eight, eight inches high? Mm-hmm. The oil crisis is forcing the price of plastics way up, so we made Joe smaller. That way, he's still competitive on price. What do you think? Honestly? Well, it feels desperate. G.I. Joe's not selling, so you're copying Mego's action figures? Ah, uh, yes. New York toy maker Mego's world's greatest superheroes. Introducing the world's greatest superheroes. Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo. Superman, the Man of Steel. These miniature replicas of DC and Marvel comic book characters are all the rage now. Kids don't want G.I. Joes these days. Bearded adventurers who lack superpowers aren't cool. Instead, they want the Incredible Hulk, the Amazing Spider-Man, and Wonder Woman. The buyer shakes his head. Sorry, I, I just don't think this stands a chance. What kid will choose that guy over Superman? Stephen puts on a brave face. Well, if it's name recognition you're after, I've got just the thing. Follow me. He takes the buyer to the other end of the Hasbro showroom, the girls' toy zone. As they approach the display, the buyer hears the familiar tune of the Charlie's Angels theme song. The TV show's been a smash hit since it debuted in 1976. Meet Charlie's Angels. In front of the buyer is a large display of eight-and-a-half-inch-high plastic recreations of the show's glamorous crime-fighting female stars. Next to them is a truck colored in dazzling orange, pink, and magenta. As the buyer takes a closer look, Stephen makes his sales pitch. So, Charlie's Angels, top ten TV show, and now the latest thing in fashion dolls. Next to Charlie's Angels, Barbie's boring. There are three dolls, one for each of the show's leading ladies, and that means girls will want all three. 
They've got glamorous dresses and clothes for action-packed adventures, like this snorkeling outfit. The buyer's excited. This is more like it. You're on to something here. How much are you going to spend on TV commercials? Two million dollars. Two million dollars for the initial campaign. Okay, I'm sold. I'll write out an order now. Stephen smiles. He's starting to think he's finally hit on a way to grab market share from Barbie. And God knows, Hasbro needs it. The 1970s haven't been kind to Hasbro. As G.I. Joe's popularity waned, so have Hasbro's finances. The company's struggling so badly that CEO Merrill Hassenfeld has had to use the family home as security for the loans it needs to stay afloat. As the buyer hands Stephen the order for him, he pops a question. Say, you got any of them electronic games? Not yet, but stay tuned. That's a shame. Mattel's got a new football one that's going to sell like crazy. Everyone's doing them. Coleco, Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers. You need to get in on this. You don't want to end up has-been rather than Hasbro, right? (laughs) Steven smiles weakly. Truth is, he wants Hasbro to get into video games, but the company's just too broke to do it. Maybe if Charlie's Angels sells, Hasbro can go high-tech too. But Hasbro's crime-fighting dolls can't break Barbie's firm grip on little girls. That Christmas, Barbie grinds Charlie's angels into the dust under her pink stiletto. Super Joe's a disaster, too. By the end of 1978, both G.I. Joe and Charlie's angels are off the market. Losing Charlie's angels, that's one thing. But dumping G.I. Joe hurts. G.I. Joe made Hasbro, but Stephen and his dad know kids are fickle customers. And sometimes, as a toy maker, even your favorites must fall by the wayside. As 1979 begins, it's looking bleak for Hasbro. The company lost more than $5 million in 1978, a loss that would have been a lot bigger if it wasn't for the surprise success of the board game Hungry Hungry Hippos, and the company's ever-reliable pencil factory. The losses confirm Wall Street's view that Hasbro is a dud stock. Even worse, the losses have split the Hassenfeld family. Stephen's uncle, Harold, runs the pencil division, and he's had enough of carrying the toy business. There's now talk of breaking the company in two. And then, just when it seemed like things couldn't get worse, Merrill suffers a heart attack at work. He's rushed to the hospital, but doesn't survive. With his dad gone, Stephen now finds himself the grieving CEO of a toy company on its knees. A toy company stuck in the plastic age, just as Mattel and its rivals plug into the video game future. A toy company that's about to lose the pencil factory that is its only source of stable income. And on top of all that, Stephen is a man living in fear. Fear of anyone finding out he's gay. On the next episode, Stephen Hassenfeld transforms Hasbro. Mattel gets an electric shock. And Barbie faces her toughest challenge yet. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. Hope you enjoyed this episode. 
Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We'd love it if you could support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. There's another way you can support us, and that's by answering a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering.